0: Of green, red Hello, this is Ed Cohen, your host today on GlobalRadioTalkShow.com, a broadcast service of global HR news. Our special guest today is in the New York area. Rita McGrath is a best selling author, a sought after speaker, and a longtime professor at Columbia Business School. She's widely recognized as a premier expert on leading innovation and growth during times of uncertainty, and certainly today. Rita has achieved the number one achievement award for strategy from the prestigious Thinkers 50, and she has consistently been named one of the world's top 10 management thinkers. So let's say hello to Rita McGrath. Hi
1: there. Nice to be here.
0: Uh, Thanks so much for being our guest today during these crazy times. I just want to add that this is Dr. Rita McGrath, PhD from Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. She also has degrees with honors from Barnard College and Columbia School of International and Public Affairs. So what is your current role, your day, your day job?
1: My day job is at Columbia Business School, where I teach a number of our executive programs, generally on the topics of strategy and innovation and how those overlap.
0: So, strategy eats culture, we've heard, of course. So, how does strategy? No, the other way around. (laughs) Oh, Oh, okay. Thank you. See that? So, how can you relate all that to today's mess and the COVID 19? What eats that?
1: Well, I think what you're going to see is a whole unfreezing of a lot of things that have been locked into place for a very long time. Certainly, the worlds of learning, teaching, performance, culture are being turned upside down right now. And when you have big unfreezing like that, it creates space for new things to grow.
0: So the unfreezing is because of the log jams created through bureaucracies and old ways of thinking?
1: I think so. I think this is going to prompt a lot of experimentation you know, as people try to adjust to this new reality. And so you're going to see things that are considered wildly crazy maybe six months ago, to now be, people are now open to exploring them. So (laughs) remote cocktail parties, who knew that was a thing? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I've I've got my most favorite new word for this season of remote cocktail parties is the quarantini.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is funny. Oh, that's great. Okay. So let's zero in here for a moment about your new book, Seen Around Corners. So who saw this one coming, though? I mean, you know, the inflection point of, of taking, of of locking down this is craziness, but it's happening. It's not quite martial law, but almost, isn't it?
1: It is. And, you know, when you ask who saw it, there are these Cassandras, right? People who did see it and were not heated. So I can think of at, at least three people. Bill Gates gave a TED Talk yeah. on the potential for a global pandemic.
0: Four or five years ago?
1: Yeah, I think it was 2015 was that. You had a number of doctors who had developed coronavirus vaccines to a certain point, and then the funding dried up. And of course, you had all the infrastructure that was put in place during the Ebola epidemic was dismantled, you know, not too long ago under the current administration. So there were, you know, there were lots of people who were saying this was a possibility, but nobody was really listening to them. And, you know, that's, that's human nature, right? We always prefer to react rather than to anticipate and prevent.
0: So, doctor, may I ask this a uh, crazy question here? About is this out of nature? Is this a plague from God? I mean, how <laughs> does this happen? You know, or is it the Russians behind it? Or, or what's <laughs> even, uh, you know, really, it's nuts.
1: Well, you know, there is a, a conspiracy theory running around that that this lab in Wuhan let this uh, lethal strain of uh, flu out of the labs. I I, I don't think that looks to be what actually happened, given the damage it's done to the Chinese economy. But anytime you have cross-species transmission of viruses, things can mutate in ways that are very unpredictable. So I think what it does illustrate is how fragile our world has become because we've assumed low risk of this sort of thing. So some years back, I wrote an article about how do you deal with complexity and If you think about responding to negative, unintended events, there's two ways you can do it. You can try to prevent it, or you can build resilience into your system. And what we've seen now across the whole world is we've just systematically cut back on resilience. And what gives you resilience? Redundancy gives you resilience. Being able to close off parts of a system when something goes wrong gives you resilience. Being able to shut down pieces of a system without having to shut down the whole system gives you resilience. And if you think of the hundreds of thousands of individual decisions that have been made by people, not out of ill will, but just what we've done is we've systematically created these conditions in which you have no way of shutting down a part of a system. You've got to shut down the whole thing.
0: So seeing around corners, you didn't see this advantage coming, of course. But maybe you've seen around corners how to spot inflection points in business before they happen. That's the name of the book. And so you were looking at other things and you came up with this. So Mm -hmm. what kinds of things inspired you to create that theme and this title? Well,
1: I think I'd looked at a number of topics before settling in on this one. And among them was this notion of unintended consequences and complex systems and then i ran across reread andy groves fantastic fantastic 1990s book called only the paranoid survive and he was writing about intel in the grip of an inflection point and that's where we are right now right we're in the grip of this inflection point brought about by the virus and what i was curious about when when i was going through his book was well he was writing about how do you dig your way out of an inflection point once it's upon you and i got interested in well how could you possibly anticipate some kind of inflection point coming toward you? And what might you do to prepare yourself? And then uh, the whole thing crystallized when a friend sent me a fantastic little article about, uh, it was called, What if you change the world and no one notices? And in that article, this historian talks about the realization, global realization of what the Wright brothers' accomplishment of manned flight had really achieved. And so they went back in time and looked at the they knew the date of the Wright Brothers' first flight, and then they went back and looked at the New York Times. The next day, nothing. The week after, nothing. The next month, nothing. It took years, literally years, before anybody realized manned flight was possible, that it could be repeated, that it could be done safely. And then, of course, that ushered in a whole revolution in transport and travel, which we're still seeing unfold today.
0: Interesting. So tell me a, a little bit about your students. I guess you have a number of classes, so just in general. Are they recent college graduates or are they a mixture of business people uh, going back? And,
1: my my participants,
0: I, I would call them participants rather
1: than students, uh, they're, they're executives. So they tend to work in global corporations. My students tend to be interested with other strategy roles or innovation roles of some kind. And lately, a lot of them have a digital mandate of some kind.
0: Very interesting. And are they mostly women these days or is it mixed? My students? Oh, no, it's a mix. And are they Americans, generally?
1: No, very global. You know, Columbia is a very center of the world kind of place, so we get students from
0: all over the place. So, in summary, from this first segment here, I see a recent article that you wrote, Preparing for an Unpredictable Future. Tell us a little bit about that, seeing around corners, what's coming.
1: Well, I I don't (laughs) really endorse people running around making predictions because the world is just so complex. It's very difficult to do that. But I do think that it's important to broaden your aperture of the possible futures you consider. And in fact, I was just thinking about it with respect to the coronavirus. One of the techniques that I use, in, and it's described in the book, is I say, well, look, one way to begin to think more broadly about what might happen is create a little two-by-two. And so on one dimension, take some major uncertainty you or your company or the economy is facing, and set out two possible features of that dimension. And then on the other dimension, take another uncertainty and do the same. So the two I was fooling around with today were this whole movement we had really dating from the Reagan administration, maximize shareholder value. And in the name of that mantra, we've seen wholesale offshoring, we've seen stock buybacks, we've seen the hollowing out of the middle class, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all done kind of in the name of this ideology. So that dimension would be on one dimension, maybe it continues. On the other dimension, perhaps we get, no, you know, this becomes a moment when people realize how frayed our social safety net is, how much we've starved essential public services and really important social things like making sure sick people working in restaurants don't come to work. And so maybe we have that world post this inflection point. And then on the other dimension, I've got one characteristic would be the economy goes into a nosedive. The other characteristic is the economy recovers robustly as people rebuild after after all this uh, downtime. And so if you just kind of look at those four conditions, what you've got is four really distinct futures. So if you take the continuance of the shareholder value mantra and the economy does indeed go into a nosedive, well, that's kind of your Les Miserables situation. <laughs> you know, you, you're probably looking at a global depression, if not recession. If the economy is robust and shareholder value thinking continues. It's basically rinse and repeat the last 30 years. But if you start to see a real change in the social contract, that's where it gets really interesting. So if it's a poor economy and you have this notion, of we really need a different kind of social contract, I think you'll see a lot more people banding together. You'll see a lot more civil society. Programs becoming more important and so forth. And of course, the best scenario for many people would be if you have this sort of pitchfork scenario where we've got a new social contract and the economy recovers really quickly, that could really pave the way for a
0: new progressive era. So, social contract, if we could simplify this a little bit, sure. it's not a Bernie Sanders. Oh, no, no, no. You know, but something no, not that at all. is just, uh, it, it will have a different name, a different tone, but similar to taking care of people.
1: Well, right. So let me illustrate with a couple of company examples because that might make it more concrete for your listeners. Let's take Boeing, right? And so Boeing was featured as one of the original good to great companies and they created magic. I mean, they just, they changed people's lives. They're like the original great American company, they, even their highly paid engineers are part of unions. So there was a really strong union labor compact at one point. And then a group of executives came in who were really much more motivated by financial considerations. So they moved the headquarters away from Seattle. They moved away from the engineers. They moved manufacturing to non-union towns in the southeast. They made a whole bunch of other decisions. But among the things that they did was they used massive amounts of stock buybacks and dividends to essentially extract value from that company to the point where the max decision was made because they were late on delivering a new airframe, and Airbus beat them to the punch because they hadn't been investing. So the economist, uh, Bill Lazanic, has a nice way of describing this. He says, you know, we used to have an economy of retain and reinvest. So people could conceive of a long career at a company, and therefore they developed specialized knowledge, and therefore they developed loyalty. And in turn, companies retained earnings and reinvested those earnings in productivity Enhancing growth, and there's a whole lot of academic theory I could point you to that talks about this. Uh, but what we've done with this excessive financialization and the concentration of wealth generation, the top of the economy, is we've broken that cycle. So the whole notion of being able to buy stock back freely, which is essentially stock market manipulation, the idea of, no, you don't keep workers for life, you offshore everything you possibly can to places like China and India, because you don't value their contributions, I mean, all that stuff, right? So that's what it means to the ordinary person. It means that everything's become financialized. So if you look at a couple of recent, you know, spectacular bankruptcies, when private equity firms get involved and load companies up with debt and simply engage in financial engineering, it chokes the life out of real innovation.
0: That's um, breathtaking.
1: <laughs> so I really do want to build on something you commented on earlier, which is this. I'm not talking about socialism, right? I'm talking about jobs that pay a living wage so people can afford to be consumers. I mean, one of the big problems with our economy right now is with so much wealth concentrated at the top, there are only so many yachts you can buy. There are only so many... You can live in. So, what ends up happening is all that wealth either goes chasing investments, which is why you have crazy venture capital rounds like we're having right now, but it also, at the end of the day, it actually undermines shared prosperity for everybody. If, if I give every worker at Disney $1,000 more a month to spend, they're going to spend it. <laughs> and we all know that that's going to be good for the whole economy.
0: Right. Okay. So, Innovation. Let's talk about innovation. It could be applied to business. It could be applied to public policy, or public-private partnership. If you get it right, it's an advantage, a competitive advantage, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Right. Okay. You wrote a book on that idea. I see the end of competitive advantage. So I did. Indeed. What's that about?
1: <laughs> sure. So the end of competitive advantage is really a look at many of our taken-for-granted assumptions in strategy which came from a different era. In fact, it came from the era I was just talking about, which is when you slower moving competitive cycles, you didn't have digitization, you didn't have globalization. And a lot of those things created barriers to entry. And what the end of advantage really talks about is as those barriers to entry come down, the life cycle of any given competitive advantage shortens. And that means you need a much more agile, much more fleet kind of strategic thinking if you're going to continue to be successful in those kinds of environments. So the end of competitive advantage is really about what does the new strategy playbook look like?
0: The education system in the U.S. public education system is really old, antiquated, except for certain charter schools in certain areas where it's very advanced. But there seems to be, in general, a breakdown in educating young people. I don't know whether it starts when they're seven years old and getting them to want to listen and pay attention when around the house they're not encouraged really to do that. So how can the education system be changed in general, Uh, or unless you want to dig deep here for a minute, how can we get some exponential growth out of the education system in America?
1: Well, I think you have to look at a couple of vectors of things coming together. So I think the first thing to realize is that when companies started to leave town, so Akron's tire manufacturers all took their manufacturing overseas, and companies like Anchor Hawking fell victim to financialization and all that kind of thing, that the coherent communities in which educational systems are rooted began to suffer. And so if you're in a steel town in Ohio, you used to be able to get a decent paying job with a high school education. And so... The first, I think, issue is that as these opportunities were closing down around them, people didn't realize that the educational system needed to fundamentally change. So I think there's a mismatch, right, between what you used to have to need and what you need now. So that's the first thing. Second thing is a very interesting point that's made by a guy named Nick Hanauer, who's a very wealthy man, and he's probably best known for saying income inequality has gotten so bad that we're at a pitchfork moment, but, you know. The people are going to rise up. And he makes the point that he used to think that the causality between excellent education and high-paying jobs went from the education to the jobs. And he says, if you look at it the other way around, if you say it's healthy, empowered, financially stable, middle-class communities that demand excellent education, if you look at it through that lens, all of a sudden it looks very different. All of a sudden, the fact that people that we have the hollowed out middle class, that we don't have those communities based with community-based firms, that we've lost so many of those social supports, all of a sudden it looks completely different. So if you think about it, a powerful, well-paid middle-class community is going to insist on great schools. So I think think there's an interesting argument to be made that the fraying of the social fabric, which so many people have commented on, has seeped over into the lack of commitment and funding for schools. Finally, the third thing I would say is Our way of educating people really hasn't changed since the days of (laughs) agriculture when they first started to have public education. But there's some really interesting experiments being tried all over the place. And there was one I read about the other day where they've essentially abandoned grades in terms of like being a fourth grader or being a fifth grader. What they've done, and I'll see if I can find you the reference afterwards, but what they've done is they've said, no, you know, you're going to be advanced at a rate that is comparable to your absorption of the material. So if you're technically a second grader, but you're at fourth grade level in math, that's fine. We'll, we'll put you in a class which can challenge you. But if you're that same second grader and you're only at a first grade level, we're not going to push you beyond your ability because we want you to emerge as competent all around. So I think there's some fascinating innovations that people are trying in schools. It's amazing. And the yeah. teachers love it. You know, they, they absolutely love it because what they can do now is they can actually be partners in progress and not just Rotely saying, yes, you passed this year. No, you didn't. And the students, better for the students. The last thing I would say is I think we're starting to see some really interesting new models. And this coronavirus is also going to be a hotbed for that kind of innovation as well. So we're starting to see firms now partnering with, particularly with community colleges and local institutions to just rethink how we do things. So a couple of interesting examples there is an IBM spearheaded initiative called p or preparation for technology, in which the students take a six-year program, which is basically their four years of high school plus a two-year associate's degree. And if they get through that program with a P-TECH degree, they are guaranteed a job at any of the tech firms that are behind this initiative. And so it keeps kids in school. It prepares them for good-paying jobs and careers. And it doesn't require like a wholesale overhaul of all of the education system but some very targeted changes, right? So you know you're in it for six years, you know you're making a commitment. Oh, and there's a huge number of internship opportunities and apprenticeship opportunities that it opens up. So that's a really interesting example
0: of uh, an innovative Uh, uh, way that companies uh, are partnering. Interesting, so it's changing basic assumptions in the strategy and tactics. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And so this leads towards Seeing around corners, in other words, making some innovations happen different from what's going on now, Absolutely. and that's, I guess, a definition of an innovation. Yeah. So this is really interesting, Dr. McGrath. I really appreciate your time here and your energy. So I wanted just to ask you about not politics, but the the, the social fabric that we see in the country today. And I don't know whether it's politically motivated. It's certainly class-oriented, I says as I see it. Jealousy is, I don't know about rage, jealousy for sure, and a sense of things, as you mentioned just a few minutes ago, things getting out of whack in the economy. I think that's true. Hollowing out of the middle class. So from all of this and from what looks like a lack of preparation and coordination at the top, deal with this virus attack, you know, it's not rotten, like Shakespeare said, but maybe it is. I don't know. What is, what's your take?
1: Well, we've had a breakdown of the sense that we're all in this together. And in fact, there right. was just a piece, Wired or one of those kinds of magazines, it was just a piece on, you know, are we actually moving towards a caste system where people can afford it by their way out of all of life's inconveniences? and everybody else has to kind of suck it up. And I think that's a symptom of this underlying problem, which is that you've got a sense among a lot of people that the game is rigged, and if you're not part of the in crowd, you're gonna be shut out no matter how much you work, and no matter how much you're prepared to bring your best self and work hard and do all that other stuff. I mean, the the thing that has, for hundreds of years, united Americans of every stripe, is this sense of, you know, work hard and you have opportunities. And what I think we're hearing now in society is that, no, you know, that people feel no matter how hard I work, I'm never going to have access to those opportunities. And the game is really rigged and the people who are in positions of authority don't want to see any change. So, I mean, one of the reasons I'm in my more optimistic moments, I think this could be a really great turning point, is that. You know, if we could recreate, rekindle that sense of we're all in this together, that could be a great place to begin a conversation, you know, across divisions.
0: Well, I've really learned a lot from these few minutes with you, Dr. Rita McGrath. I really appreciate that. And if our listeners want to learn more, they could find you on LinkedIn and RitaMcGrath.com, correct? Absolutely. Thanks for being our guest.
1: Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. This is Ed Cohen signing off from San Diego, and that is Dr. Rita McGrath from New York, as GlobalRadioTalkShow.com signing off. Yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful.